Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Stupendous and Scandalous. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September the 13th, 2015. The Persed meteor shower last month dubbed the fireball champion by NASA for its hundred shooting stars per hour, is an annual reminder of our fascination with the heavens. My neighbor even made a special trip to an island for maximum viewing pleasure. About 20 years ago, my wife and I visited Stonehenge, where 5,000 years ago, architect astronomers hoisted massive boulders into a circle based upon their knowledge before they ever started construction of the summer solstice and of how the sun's rays would strike their sight at a precise time and place. About that same time, stargazers in Egypt noticed how one morning every year, just before the Nile flooded, Sirius lined up with the sunrise, and so they designated that day the first day of their calendar year. I still remember a chilly October night in remote Siberia near Lake Baikal in an evening on the outskirts of Nairobi when the ink-black sky was so clogged with blazing stars that I felt like I could reach up and touch them. So I resonate with the psalmist for this week in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they display knowledge. Of course, not everyone draws such pious conclusions from the book of nature. In her book, The Sacred Depths of Nature, the biologist Ursula Goodenough recalls a camping trip when she was about 20 years old. She writes, I found myself in a sleeping bag looking up into the crisp Colorado night. Before I could look around for Orion or the Big Dipper, I was overwhelmed with terror. The panic became so acute that I had to roll over and bury my face in my pillow. When I later encountered the famous quote from the physicist Steven Weinberg, the more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it seems pointless, I wallowed in its poignant nihilism. A, blink, a bleak emptiness overtook me whenever I thought about what was really going on out in the cosmos or deep in the atom. A worldview that's limited to the scientific method alone might be intellectually coherent, but it doesn't strike me as emotionally satisfying. And so elsewhere in her book, Goodenough tries to sweeten the sour apple by embracing what she calls a non-theistic religious naturalism. After all, as was reported last month, our universe is slowly but definitely dying out. Scientists have recently confirmed that the energy generated today by more than 200,000 galaxies is only about half as strong as it was two billion years ago. Once you've burned up all the fuel in the universe, essentially, that's it, says Joe Lisk of the University of Hamburg, one of the members of the research team. 
The stars die like a fire dies, and then you have embers left over that then glow but eventually cool down, and the fire just goes out. If the only story that a person had was our scientific knowledge of our universe, with its 100 billion galaxies, each one containing 100 billion stars, what conclusions might one reasonably make about the existence of God? Whose wisdom would prevail, that of King David in Psalm 19, or Ursula good enough? Albert Einstein appealed to what he called cosmic awe. Einstein was decidedly irreligious in the sense that he spurned all institutional affiliations. He never attended worship services or prayed, rejected all dogmatic theology like miracles, the afterlife, or prayer. He didn't believe that God was in any sense personal, and he was a strict determinist. On the other hand, he found it impossible not to think of himself as religious in the sense of humility and awe at the mystery, rationality, and complexity of the cosmos. The eternal mystery of the world is its comprehensibility, he said. For Einstein, the book of nature betokened some superior intelligence. He said, I believe in Spinoza's God, who reveals himself in the orderly harmony of what exists, not in a God who concerns himself with the fates and actions of human beings. Einstein repudiated those whom he called the fanatical atheists who tried to claim him for their cause. About a year before he died, he wrote in a letter that he understood himself to be a quote-unquote deeply religious unbeliever. In addition to the story of science, Christians honor the stories in Scripture. The readings this week remind us how the Christian story makes two fundamental claims, one of which is stupendous and the other scandalous. The psalmist makes the stupendous claim that the transcendent God who flung the 100 billion galaxies into space is like an attentive mother or a tender father who cares for each and every human being. He hears our every cry for help and intervenes to act for our good. The alternate Psalm 116 affirms what Einstein denied, that God speaks and acts. He loves and he listens. The Hebrew poet stakes a claim far beyond good enough's impersonal mystery or Einstein's cosmic awe. To this stupendous claim about creation, the gospel for this week in Mark chapter 8 makes a scandalous claim about redemption, that God most fully revealed himself in the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of God's love and the redemption of his world. He is the Christ, Peter confesses, the sent one, the holy one of God, the stone rejected by the builders. Paul calls this a profound mystery, a scandal, 
in a stumbling block. Only our modern hubris imagines that we are the first people to take offense at such a claim. The reductionist viewpoint that, that the scientific method is the only way of gaining valid knowledge, or that the physical world of nature is all there is to know, has never really appealed to most people. I like how the Harvard Islamic scholar Wilfred Cantwell Smith responds to the anti-transcendent hubris of the modern West. He's worth quoting at length from his book, Towards a World Theology. Listen to Wilfred Cantwell Smith. Rather than feeling called upon to defend the awareness of what some of us call the divine before the bar of modern skeptics' particular logic and exceptional worldview, I am at least equally inclined to call them before the bar of world history to defend their curious insensitivity to this dimension of human life. Seen in global perspective, anti-transcendent thinking is an aberration. Intellectuals are challenged, indeed, to understand it. How it has arisen that, that for the first time on this earth, a significant group has failed to discern the larger context of being human and has even tried to modify its inherited civilization so. After all, the overwhelming majority of intelligent persons at most times and places, in all cultures other than in part the recent West, have recognized the transcendent quality of humanity in the world. To be secularist in the negative sense is oddly parochial in both space and time and to opt for what might be a dying culture. It is important that we keep in conversation with this group, but important also that we do not fall victim to, nor treat with anything but compassion, its incapacity to see. All human history, says Smith, has been a sacred history. Stargazing can make you think like that. For books this week, I review a title called They Know Everything About You. It's by Robert Shear with Sarah Bellotti. It has an interesting subtitle, How Data Collecting Corporations in Snooping Government Agencies are destroying democracy. New York Nation Books, 256 pages. Just when you thought it couldn't get any creepier, as I finished this book, Google announced what it calls its new Your Timeline, which shows everywhere you've been on a map by time and date. But don't worry, there are privacy controls, and you can always delete any of the data. The Facebook Terms of Service Agreement, after all, is only 9,000 words of legal jargon. So, good luck with that.
When Robert Shear uses the word everything in the title of his book, he's not exaggerating. Not just your physical location, but photos, phone records, downloads, purchases, books and movies perused, where you work, how you voted, and on and on. About 1,500 pieces of data per consumer. And we can thank Edward Snowden, says Shear, for debunking the mass denial about just how invasive our surveillance state has become. We've accepted all this as the new normal with barely a whimper. If it's ever needed, the military intelligence complex of our government and the commercial data mining companies like Google which collude and collaborate in a symbiotic relationship, offer the bogus justifications of national security and consumer choice. Yes, technology has brought us numerous liberations, but the trade-off has been what Scheer calls the ruthless exploitation of the citizenry due to the monetization of our personal data. Shear, founder and editor-in-chief of the online magazine Truthdig and professor at University of Southern California, argues that our, our Orwellian state of affairs is badly undermining democracy. Because for democracy, privacy is the ballgame. Without the assurances of privacy, say goodbye to the First and Fourth Amendments. In his last chapter, Scheer looks at some positive developments among privacy advocates, like Alicia McDonald at Stanford. But the big challenge is that the problems he identifies aren't personal, but systemic. For more on this important subject, see my reviews of the books by Dave Eggers, Jaron Lanier, and Yegeny Morozov. Once again, the title of the book, They Know Everything About You. For movies this week, we go to the country of England. The title, A History of Britain. It's from the year 2000. This BBC documentary was written and narrated by the British-born professor from Columbia University, the historian Simon Shama, who's more recently been known for his story of the Jews, which is both a book and a BBC documentary. This history of Britain consists of 15 one-hour episodes that cover 5,000 years of history. The very first one considers the Neolithic community of a dozen homes called Scarabray, among the Orkney Islands that flourished for 600 years beginning around 3100 BC. The final episode, called The Two Winstons, contemplates the complicated legacy of Britain's imperial past and its decline as a world power and covers the period up to the year 1965. My wife and I borrowed this six-disc DVD set from our local library. A History of Britain, 
15 episodes by the BBC. For poetry this week, we've posted a poem by George MacDonald, who lived from 1824 to 1905. It's called The Carpenter. O Lord, at Joseph's humble bench, thy hands did handle saw and plane. Thy hammer nails did drive and clench, avoiding knot and humoring grain. That thou dost seem, thou wast indeed, in sport thy tools thou didst not use, nor helping hinds or fishers need, the laborers hire too nice refuse. Lord, might I be but as a saw, a plane, a chisel in thy hand. No, Lord, I take it back in awe, such prayer for me is far too grand. I pray, O Master, let me lie as on thy bench thy favored wood, thy saw, thy plane, thy chisel ply, and work me into something good. No, no, ambition, holy high, urges for more than both to pray. Come in, O gracious force, I cry, O workman, share my shed of clay. Then I, at bench or desk or oar, with knife or needle, voice or pen, as thou in Nazareth of yore shall do the Father's will again. Thus fashioning a workman rare, O Master, this shall be thy fee. Home to thy Father thou shalt bear, another child made like to thee. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September the 13th, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.